Well, I said at the outset of the talks, we were not going to be going in chronological order or uh, the order of the visions that Zachariah received that night. We're jumping ahead to chapter five. And as I, and, and the reason for that, again, is because um, we are trying to take a, a thematic approach to this in terms of uh, going through what we're looking at today. So we are going to be looking in this class at um, the two visions. Okay. We are going to be looking at these two visions of um, the flying scroll and the woman in the ephah. As we said, these two visions are sometimes considered as one. If you're not going to look at them as one, then you would look at them as two very closely related visions. That is one following on from the other. Now, it says when we come to Zechariah 5, verse 1, we have in the first few verses the vision of the flying scroll, a massive scroll written on both sides that Zechariah sees going forth swiftly. And it's a judgment that's coming forth. You'll notice in verse 1, at the very beginning, it says, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes. Now, we want to just consider the significance of that term, he turned. If you look back at chapter 4, at the very first verse, we're given a hint, a clue, as to the timing of Zechariah chapter 4, where it says, the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 1, is being, as a prophet, being awoken out of sleep. Now, who does that remind us of? What other prophet was awakened out of sleep? We might think about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, it says he was awakened. And what was he being told about in Daniel chapter 10? He was being told about the resurrection. So this is telling us that Zechariah 4 is a post-resurrection vision. When we come to Zechariah 5, and it now tells us, I turned, it's signifying he's turning to look at events before the resurrection. That is, in the past, um, or yet future to his day, but in the past to our day. He was looking at the uh, things before the time of the resurrection. You'll notice then when we come to chapter 6 in verse 1, it says, I turned. So he turns again. And then in chapter 6, he's going to be looking at things again post-resurrection. So he's asked. It's, it says in verse 1, he looked, he sees this flying scroll, and he asked the question, what seest thou? The angel asks Zechariah the question, what are you looking at? And, and, and Zechariah describes it. He says, I see a flying roll or scroll. The length thereof is 20 cubits. The breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Then said he unto me, so this is the presiding angel that's speaking now again to Zechariah. He says, this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off on this side according to it. Everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So this is a scroll that's written on both sides, and we're told that it is a curse that is going to come upon the earth, or that word earth can also be rendered land as well. Hold your hand here and come back to Jeremiah 36, and we'll see something similar. There was a scroll that was written. And, and if you have a marginal references in, in your Bible, it might take you back here. When it, In verse 1, I've got one in, in mind where it talks about the flying roll, and it takes you to Jeremiah 36 and verse 2. And this is where Jeremiah was told, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I've spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee from the days of Josiah, even until this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, 
And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And then that roll was the book that was taken, roll that was taken to Jehoiakim, which he burned in the fire. But we have an, a, another prophet, of course, with a roll. And what was written on it? It was written words against Israel and Judah that they might learn and uh, from their mistakes, they, that they might return from their evil ways. It says at the end of verse 3, a very similar idea to what we're going to find here in Zechariah chapter 5, a curse up against Israel and Judah because of how they had turned away from God's ways. Now, this was yet future to Zechariah's day, and specifically, we're going to find it speaks about the time of Christ's first advent. But the warning was there also for Zechariah's day or for the, the years that would follow, because we know that a falling away would begin to happen by the time we get to the end of Nehemiah. And uh, Malachi wrote in those days, and there are some echoes here also to Malachi's uh, prophecy as well. So there was a sort of a, a shorter term application, but the, the greater fulfillment of these things was in the first century um, to do with the failure, as we said, of the Aaronic or Mosaic priesthood. Now, as we said, this role is massive, but very specific dimensions were given about this role. 10 cubits by 20 cubits. Now, Zechariah, being a priest, would know what those were the dimensions of. Those were the dimensions in the tabernacle of the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place is what those dimensions were. So this is a curse that's being brought forth against the holy place, or against, we should say, what the holy place stands for and what it represents. Come with me over to um, we're going to come to Hebrews chapter 9, where the apostle is going to talk about what the holy place represents. So Hebrews chapter 9, and this is a chapter where there's a contrast being drawn. He's drawing a contrast between the first covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant, the second covenant. And we can see that in the end of chapter 8, just before this section, he speaks about a new covenant. And in making a new covenant, he's made the first one old. This is Hebrews 8, verse 13. Now, that which, is, that which decayeth and waxeth old, the old covenant, is ready to vanish away. And then he goes into chapter 9 and begins speaking about these covenants. There was a first covenant, he says that had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, verse 2, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So notice that he refers to the holy place as being the first tabernacle. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So he's drawing a contrast here, and the contrast is going to be between the, ser the service of the priests on a daily basis in the holy place versus the service of the high priest alone on that one day in the year, the Day of Atonement. And he says, we're going to jump down to verse 6, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So there they were every day, except for the Day of Atonement. But, verse 7 says, into the second, the most holy place, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And that Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in, was pointing forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to a better way that was going to come. And he says, verse 8, the Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, into the most holy place, 
was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing or in operation. So while the first tabernacle, the holy place, was in operation, then the way into the holiest was not yet manifest. That would come with Christ, when literally the veil, this massive, thick veil that stood in the temple between the holy and the most holy was literally rent in two from top to bottom. God opened up that way into the holy, most holy place, as it were. Then verse 9 says that the holy place was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And so here we have the holy place, the first tabernacle, speaking of the time then present, the mortal servants of the priests under the Mosaic covenant. The second, the most holy place, the second tabernacle, the immortal service of Christ, the great high priest in the presence of God. So when Zechariah sees in Zechariah chapter 5, a massive scroll that is the dimensions of the holy place, this is a curse that's coming forth against the um, against the Mosaic order of things, against the Aaronic priests. And in the days of Christ, those priests had become corrupt. And so this was to come about against those that steal, and though, verse 3, Everyone that stealeth shall be cut off on this side, according to it, and those that swear falsely. Everyone that sweareth shall be cut off on that side, according to it. We're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at this idea of what it means to steal. This is not talking about people, the, these priests going and breaking into people's homes and stealing things. It was even more significant than that. If that was bad enough, they weren't necessarily doing that. But this is what we find is what they were doing is that they were stealing from God. Now, just before we go to the reference in Jeremiah 23, the margin, if you if you have a marginal reference, it will say every one of this people that stealeth holdeth himself guiltless. And Brother John Carter comments on that and says, this is a perverse refusal to recognize moral value and responsibilities. So they weren't even recognizing that what they were doing was wrong. Now, we want to go back to Jeremiah 23, because this is where God talks about, or through the prophet Jeremiah, talks about what it means to steal from God. Now, Jeremiah 23 begins... Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. So this is against the leaders of the people, and specifically the spiritual leaders of the people who should have been feeding the flock of God. And we come down to verse 30, and it says there, Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith Yahweh, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. So there's that idea of stealing. They were stealing God's words from their neighbor. How were they doing that? Well, verse 31 says, Behold, I am against the prophets, saith Yahweh, that use their tongues. And they say, He saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith Yahweh. And do tell them, and cause my people to err by their, their lies, and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith Yahweh. To steal then from God is to steal from his word. To take the meaning, to take the implication of the message of his word away from the people, and to cause them to sin. And they could do that by saying, standing up and saying, well, God teaches this, God teaches that, when in fact he doesn't teach that. Or by people claiming that they had received prophecies of, of, of dreams, and when in fact they hadn't. 
Now, in a present day application, brothers and sisters, we have to think about what this means because it's very serious to steal from God's word. Have we ever heard the reasoning that certain parts of scripture should be ignored or tossed out because they either aren't inspired or the writer is bringing their own personal bias into the into the text you see when people go down that line of thinking and begin to say well paul had a bias or what paul was writing was just very specific to that one place and that one time it has no relevance to us at all that's stealing from god's word it's a very serious thing we have to be careful that we don't go down that path and start saying that we should be uh, changing the way that we do things because certain scriptures need to be reinterpreted because they're and it takes away really from the inspiration of God. That's what was happening in Christ's day. And we think about when he spoke on the Mount, or uh, sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about how the how the Pharisees, what were they doing? They were limiting the word of God. They were taking the word and they were saying, well, it only applies in these limited circumstances. And Christ had to say, no, these principles like murder and adultery apply in broader sense as well. And he gave some very specific examples in Matthew chapter 5 about what they were doing with God's word and how people were being led to sin because of it. In Malachi's day, in Malachi 3 and verse 8, what was happening there? Well, the priesthood, um, they were robbing the priesthood of the tithes and offerings. Um, and so because the room in the temple had been taken over by Tobiah. So there was no place to store the tithes and the offerings in the temple to feed the priests, the spiritual leaders. So the spiritual leaders had to spend their time going out and, uh, and working to make a living. And so they had no time to teach and instruct the people in the ways of God. And that too is described as robbing God. So taking away from the message of God's word or taking away the opportunity for people to hear it would be the idea of what it means to steal from God. It's a very serious thing. We remember what Christ said about swearing. And, and this is speaking about the swearing of oaths. And what he said in Matthew 23, verse 16 to 19, Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. Whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. You fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he's guilty. You fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. So here is Christ's comments on this type of activity, which is referred to in Zechariah 5, verse 3. Back in Jeremiah 23, if you still have it open, and I, I turned away from it, but um, Jeremiah 23 also talks about, has some other links into Zechariah chapter 5, which are worth noting. It speaks about a house, and it speaks about wickedness. Verse 11 says of Jeremiah 23, For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. So where was this wickedness found? In God's house, in the temple. Jeremiah was saying. Now, you'll notice that there's going to be references to the house in verse 4 of Zechariah 5. I will bring it forth, saith Yahweh of hosts, and it shall enter into, where's this curse going to go? Into the house of the thief, into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timbers thereof and the stones thereof. Now, this link back to Jeremiah 23 is helpful because he's not referring to their literal houses, the family homes. He's referring to the temple as being the house of God. That's where this wickedness was being taken place, and so that's where the curse was going to come. Verse 34 of Jeremiah 23 says, And as for the prophet and priest and the people that say, The burden of the Lord, I will even punish that man and his house. And the other link we didn't talk about in verse 11 was wickedness, which verse 8 
talks about wickedness. Jeremiah 23, verse 39, Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you. I will forsake you in the cities that I gave you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence. So this was the reason why God was removing um, Israel and, and, uh, and Judah in the past. And this is what was going to happen in the first century as well. History was going to repeat itself. The lesson for the returned captives was don't fall into the mistakes of the past. Learn from their mistakes. So let's just consider this idea of the house of the thief and him that sweareth falsely as it relates to the temple. When Jesus first came to the temple to cleanse it in John 2 verse 16, he refers to it as my father's house. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. When he comes back three years later, he doesn't refer to it as my father's house. He says, Matthew 23, 38, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So corrupt have been the priests and what was going on in the temple at that time. The Lord could not refer to it as my father's house, but referred to it as your house. And he's picking up, I believe, from those words in in Jeremiah, and also from Zechariah chapter 5, where it refers to this house of the thief and the house of him that sweareth falsely. And this curse was going to come. Now, Zechariah 5 verse 4 says that the curse when it came would consume it, consume the house with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. That language is picked up from Leviticus in relation to a leprous house. Now, today, we would say the house has mold. Um, in those days, they didn't, wouldn't use those terminology. It looks like leprosy. The priest would come. It says in Leviticus 14, verse 44 and 45, he would come and he would look, he would inspect that house, and behold, if the plague be spread in the house, it is a fretting leprosy in the house. It is unclean. And what was he to do then? He would break down the house, the stones of it and the timber thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city to an unclean place. So notice that reference. The stones and the timber would be removed. And in Zechariah 5, in verse 4, what did it say? It would consume the house with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. The same two words are used. The temple had become a leprous house. And this idea of consume, it shall consume it in Zechariah 5, verse 4. Another link back to Jeremiah 8, where consume is used. It says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. So this was about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would come about in AD 70. Now we move into the next part of this vision, vision seven, which carries on from here, the woman in the ephah. And here we're going to see that that spirit of wickedness, that spirit of stealing from God, swearing falsely, leading the people astray, was going to now be picked up in the winds of judgment that were going to come in 8070 and be removed and established somewhere else. Brother Carter says, the flying roll was a prophecy of the coming destruction of Israel's house, which was leprous because of their sins. But beyond that, another apostasy, closely associated and indeed springing out of Israel's apostasy, was to develop in the earth. History repeated itself. Corruption entered, and Christianity became a worldly system delineated by Zechariah in terms which show how objectionable it had become in the sight of God. So this spirit that was seen in Israel in the first century was now going to move into Christianity. So we're introduced in this these set of verses to a woman. 
a woman that is in the midst of an ephah. Verse 5, then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, lift up now thine eyes and see, what is this that goeth forth? And I said, what is it? And he said, so this is now, he's talking with the angel beside him, Zechariah is, and the angel now says, this is an ephah that goeth forth. And he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So you picture this large ephah, this large, I'll put a picture on the screen in a moment, this large basket with this big lead cover on top, and it's lifted up, and Zechariah appears inside, and you can see there's this woman inside. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So the, the lid is lifted up, look inside, the woman is cast down, the lid is put back on. Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. The wind was in their wings, they had wings like the wings of a stork. They lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven, and then said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do they bear the ephah? Where, where are they taking it? They're going off with this woman in the ephah. And he said unto me, to build an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So the woman is one of the features of this uh, prophecy. Now, a woman in scripture, I think most of us would know that in the Old Testament times, Israel was referred to as a woman. And when um, she was faithful, she was described as a faithful bride. And uh, Jeremiah 6 verse 2 says, I've likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. But when Israel turned away from God, then it describes it as being an unfaithful woman. She played the harlot. And so it says in Jeremiah 3, the Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She's gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her sis treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when all for all the curses whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So this is the language of Old Testament times. But when we come into New Testament times and we come to the Ecclesia, the exact same language is used. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks about the Ecclesia as being a bride for Christ. I'm jealous over you, says Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. I've espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And he's picking up language that would be used again in Revelation 14 of the faithful. They're described as virgins who follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. But Paul said, I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupt from the simplicity that is in Christ. So just as Israel in the past had become a plate the harlot and turned away from God and turning to idols, so Christianity could play the harlot by turning away from the truth of God's word and introducing other ideas and other things. And so we find when we come to the book of Revelation, that's exactly what happened. We find a woman there and a woman first in Revelation 12 and verse 2. She's with child. She's certainly not a chaste virgin any longer because now she's pregnant with false ideas and that have been coming in until we get the culmination of this in Revelation 17, where we're told about a woman that's riding this beast, this great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And so a woman needs to be understood as being, um, in the Old Testament times, a woman was representing all the nation of Israel. And depending on their circumstances, they could either be a faithful bride or they could be a harlot. 
in New Testament times, we could say all Christianity is painted as a woman, but there are, amongst that, there are those that are faithful, and then there are those that have introduced other ideas and have not been faithful and play the harlot. This woman now is in the ephah. She is described, it's described in verse 8 as wickedness. We get a very clear picture. We're not talking about the ecclesia of God and the true believers. We're talking about those that have introduced false ideas, whether it be Israel of old, Israel in the days of Christ, or whether it be in Christianity today. Verse, um, um, the idea of an ephah then, when we look at this, ephah, there are two applications in scripture when we look at it. And um, most of the references to an ephah are in terms of a measuring weight, and specifically in relation to the offerings that were to be made to God. You would find many references in the Old Testament to, um, to an ephah being used to measure things out. But ephah was also used in commercialism and, and the sale of, of, of things, because it's a measuring weight in, in essence. That's what, it, that's what it was used for. In Amos's day, Amos spoke uh, in Amos 8, verse 5, he said, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we might set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? The people in Amos's day um, which earlier we saw a reference to that in our first class, the people that were at ease, they didn't like the feasts, feast days, because they couldn't sell things. They had to close their shops up on those days, and they couldn't make money. And so here they're just waiting for these Sabbath days and these feast days to be over so they can get back to selling money but when or selling things and making money. And when they were doing that, what they were doing was they were falsifying the balances they were making the ephah small. Um, it was basically, they were saying, saying, well, I'm going to sell you an ephah of something, but it wasn't truly the right size of an ephah. They had made it a little smaller so that they were getting the money for selling an ephah, when in fact, that's not what the customer was getting, is the sense here of these words. You can see this idea of commercialism, merchandise, corruption, that kind of idea is associated in Amos, with the idea of the ephah. And here, the ephah is not, in the context of this, is, is not in something positive, it's something negative. It's very similar to when Jesus said, my father's house is a house of merchandise. They have been made a religion, a, a religion of merchandise of buying and selling things and they had lost their perspective on what it was supposed to be about that it was supposed to be about developing the hearts and minds of individuals and so christ would condemn the people in his day woe unto you scribes and pharisees hypocrites you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law judgment mercy and faith these ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. So they had become so focused on commercialism and gain, they had forgot about what God was truly interested in, the judgment, the mercy, and the faith. And so it says, Christ would say, wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them that killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? We notice here that he talks about filling up the measure of their fathers. And this ephah, which was a measure, was being filled with wickedness. This woman inside and carried off to another place. And so what is the woman in an ephah? It's a corrupt religious system that focuses on outward show, ritual, and self-justification. 
a religion surrounding itself in merchandise, commercialism, and the love of money. That was the spirit of the priesthood in the days of Christ. And that was the spirit that would eventually now be moved and established elsewhere in Christianity. Now, the lesson for us, and I don't think we necessarily have um, a problem with this in our community, but the, the more practical lesson we could take from this is we need to be very careful that our religion and the way that we do things doesn't just become an outward show of things, that we don't show up at the meeting on a Sunday morning just to fill and warm a seat. Our hearts and minds have to be engaged in the things that we are doing. We don't do the daily Bible readings just to tick a box and to say, well, I did my Bible readings and didn't take the time to think about the things that were being said in those in those passages. So we need to be very careful. We don't fall into the system of just going through the motions of the truth. And we also must make sure that although we can be very busy in the things of the truth and in ecclesial life, that we aren't, um, that doesn't just become a routine, that doesn't just become, as it were, a social club that we belong to because there's people that we can get together with and 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 have friends and so on. It really is about all of us working together to develop each other spiritually to be ready for the kingdom of God. So this is a practical way we could look at this for ourselves. But obviously what was being spoken about here is an, a, way, a greater extension of that where now the whole focus has been left and it's all about merchandise, commercialism, the love of money. That idea comes out um, and is alluded to when he says um, in verse six at the end, it says, he saith moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. The net translation says, this is their eye through all the earth. So the word resemblance being looked at as the word eye. In other words, their sight was set on commercial gain and wickedness. And it would be global, operating throughout the whole earth. There is a link there to the Lord Jesus Christ when he would say in Matthew chapter 6, I'm just going to turn there for a moment. He talks about the eye, makes a reference to the eye being evil. And he says, the, and this is Matthew 6 verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If thine, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, there are Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy that help us to understand that the idea of an evil eye is an eye set on merchandise and commercialism and money. And it ties in right with the very next verse when Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches. And so this is, this is that idea, it would seem, of the end of verse 6 in Zechariah 5. Well, judgment would come, and the winds of judgment would 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 pick up they would come and in verse 9 of Zechariah 5 we're going to skip over a couple of verses and it says I lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold there came out two women and the wind was in their wings wind in scripture speaks about judgment Jeremiah 51 is an example of this where God says, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against thee a destroying wind. And I will send unto Babylon fanners that shall fan her and shall empty her land, for in the day of trouble there shall be against that shall be against her round about. So wind is about judgment. And in here, this wind was the judgments that would come by the Roman forces upon Israel in AD 70 and would remove them from the land and destroy the temple. But when that happened, these two women with wings of storks would lift up the ephah and carry it away. Two women 
Ezekiel 23 speaks about two women in relation to Israel as Samaria is a hola and Jerusalem a holaba and talks about them playing the harlot. The stork, we learn from Leviticus 11.19, was an unclean migrating bird. And so it would seem that this that the um, these two women are related to uh, Judah and Samaria being carried away in the judgment. And, and as they go, this spirit of wickedness, this spirit which was manifest in the first century, the Judaistic spirit, was being carried away and carried to what it says as verse 11 as the land of Shinar. Now, the land of Shinar, where this was being carried to, takes our minds, of course, back to Genesis chapter 10, where it mentions the land of Shinar. And this is the time of Nimrod. Verses 9 and 10 says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. When he talks, some of you will know that when it talks about him being a hunter, he's not hunting animals. He was hunting people. He was persecuting the true believers. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar. So this is Nimrod's kingdom. It was a kingdom of human pride and arrogance, as we can see in the story of the Tower of Babel. It represented the kingdom of the present. Everything was focused on the here and now, not focused on the future. And think about that in terms of religion when things are placed more on the present than the future, or when the kingdom of God is not something that's in the future, not something that's real, but the kingdom of God is something now in the church. Nimrod's kingdom was persecuting the righteous. It represented gatherer of many peoples from many different areas to build this tower and it was the beginning of an apostate religion. Babylon's religion began here in Shinar. And many of the practices that are still around today in the church come all the way back from the time of Nimrod. And I'll show one example of that in a moment. So when we read this in, in Zechariah's prophecy that this woman in the ephah is going to be carried to the land of Shinar, we're not talking about the literal land of Shinar in modern-day Iraq. If we think about Nebuchadnezzar's image for a moment, we will know that this demonstrates how the kingdom of God, or kingdom of man, rather, developed over time. And it began in Babylon, passed on to Persia and to Greece, and then ended up in Rome. And so Rome is the modern successor to Babylon or to Shinar and referred to in Revelation as Babylon the Great. It is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So when we read in Zechariah 5 and verse 11, Shinar, this is referring to Rome. And is Rome known for its merchandise, buying and selling? Revelation 18 leaves no question of a doubt. Revelation 18, verse 11 says, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her when she's destroyed. For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore, the merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and of pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Revelation 18 makes it very clear what is going on there from God's perspective. And you will notice another link to Rome, um, and we're not going to go down this path. We could, but we're not, we're not going to go there uh, today um, for the sake of time. But uh, just back in verse 8, when it says this is wickedness, 
In fact, I think it's today's reading in 2 Thessalonians 2 that talks about the man of sin and that word wickedness or lawlessness comes up there. Just one example of something that is passed down um, from Shinar all the way through to the practices of the church today is the worship of the mother and the child. When many people see this mother and child, they think Mary and baby Jesus, and they think, isn't that sweet and lovely, and don't realize that this has actually come. This has nothing to do with Mary and Jesus at all. It stems all the way back to, and this is just an image we got from the from the internet with different things, but uh, Heslop's Two Babylons goes through to prove this, that it extends all the way back to the Babylonian goddess, Semiramis, and her god incarnate son. This is where it stretches back to, and many religions have this idea of a mother and child that have been brought into it. So it has nothing to do with Mary and Jesus. Sister Rita and I, um, back in, I think, 2018, um, had the opportunity to visit New York City. Um, actually, it was the last time we came to visit uh, Brother Ken and Sister Celia when they were living there. And um, and we went to St. Patrick's Cathedral just to have a look. And uh, we went inside. And one of the things we noticed was there were these people that were lighting candles. This isn't my picture. This is another one uh, that just... Uh, an image, but um, people were lighting these these candles, uh, and and I don't know exactly why, but they do this because they're told to do this. And there was a little box in order to light a candle, you have to pay money. So it's just an example of making money from people and telling them to do things that are clearly not in the Bible. That's why I can say I don't know what they're doing it for because it's not in the Bible, but they're told that they need to do this. You'll also notice here um, that right in their main, uh, main, this is where all the seats are, little gift shop right at the side, <laughs> full of idols, full of little figurines and things like that, crosses and so on, that people can go and can buy. And so it's a whole money-making uh, thing that's going on there. Um, and it's not to advance the, the knowledge of the truth. Of course, we have to be careful. I mean, we have book bookstores in our ecclesias, ecclesial halls, but uh, they're to promote, of course, the teaching of scripture, uh, not to sell figurines and things. Now, in uh, Revelation 18, you'll notice actually in Zechariah uh, 5, it says that uh, he says they're going to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Notice it says her own base. Revelation 18 also picks up on that idea of her. How much, it says, verse 7 of Revelation 18, how much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously or in all luxury. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Now this idea of a house being built for her in this land, and she's going to be placed upon her own pedestal, links back to Jesus' parable that he taught about the house on, well, Matthew says the sand, but Luke says upon the earth. It's an interesting phrase that Luke uses when the Lord says this parable, and maybe he told the parable on two occasions, or maybe it was just once and Luke changed the words. But nevertheless, there's significance to this when he says, He that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth. And what happened to that house? Well, great judgment came. A stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. If you just come to Revelation chapter 13 for a moment, you're going to see that this phrase, upon the earth, is all over Revelation 13. This house upon the earth 
that Christ refers to, that earth is the European continent. Revelation 13, and it talks about the beasts coming up out of the sea and of the beast of the earth. And so, the, obviously, I mean, if you're familiar with this, then this might make a little more sense than if you're not. Um, so bear with me. Uh, verse 8, it says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Notice that all that dwell on the earth, people living on the earth, a house upon the earth were the words. And that word upon the earth, that's the exact same word, Greek words that are picked up from Luke 6 when Christ said upon the earth. It's used again in verse 12 when speaking about this, um, this beast of the earth, referring to the Holy Roman Empire. He exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound is healed. Verse 14, he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth, by which means of those miracles which he had power to do in his sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So you get this idea through Revelation 13 of what's going on on the earth. It's the European earth. And you come back to Zechariah 5 and hear on the European earth in Rome, which is referred to as Shinar, what do we have going on here? A house is being built, a house of wickedness, a house which is manifesting the very same spirit, the very same character of the of the what was going on in Christ's day and the strong condemnation that he had for them carry through to today and today's world. It's a religion that's focused on merchandise, um, buying and selling. And as we say here in this parable, Christ said, the ruin of that house will be great. So that's Zechariah chapter 5, and we didn't get a chance to look at all of the elements of this. Of course, as we said, the, the lesson for the returned captives was that they needed to be making sure they didn't fall into this trap of this kind of religion, practicing their religion like it was some routine ritual or letting it become a commercial thing. And, um, and we can see how it, that spirit was then carried over into Christianity. In our next class, we're going to move on. We're going to come into chapter 6, and we're also going to go back and pick up a little bit from Zechariah chapter 2, or sorry, from the second vision in Zechariah chapter 1. And we're going to see very much how we're going to be involved in the work of Christ and in bringing the world under subjection to him in the future.